0: This morning, uh, I've entitled this sermon as well as our little mini-series. We're going to do a three-week little mini-series uh, on the end times uh, because that's what Mark is going to talk about. I've entitled this The Last Days According to Jesus, Part 1. The Last Days According to Jesus, Part 1. And for those of you who read, uh, you're probably familiar with this title being a book, one of R.C. Sprawl's books, The Last Days According to Jesus. And so R.C. Sprawl passed away uh, not too long ago, went home to be with the Lord. So let this three-part miniseries be my personal tribute to R.C. Sprawl for a lifetime of pointing so many of us to Christ and to Jesus. Today we're in Mark 13, so if you have God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn with me to Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to give you a moment to turn there or to pull it up. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Will you please turn there? Mark 13, starting in verse 1. Mark 13, starting in verse 1. Let me read this to you. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but please follow along with your hearts and with your eyes and whatever translation you have before you mark 13 starting in verse 1 and as he came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher what wonderful stones what wonderful buildings and jesus said to him do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down and as he sat on The Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? When will the temple fall? I'm just inserting that. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end, meaning the end of this age, is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdoms against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There are but the beginning. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are going to say or what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end, will be saved. May God bless the reading of his word. So that's the first part of Mark 13. Just as a preview, in Mark 13, you're going to have to pay attention because Jesus speaks prophetically, which means he speaks of certain events that are already fulfilled. So in verses 1 to 13, most of the events that Jesus predicts are already fulfilled to a great degree by the time AD 70 comes around. But even though they are fulfilled, they are going to experience a heightened level of fulfillment that we see in the book of Revelation in the end of this age. Then you see certain parts of Mark 13 that are clearly not fulfilled until the days leading up to the to the final three and a half years before Jesus returns. There is the abomination of desolation. We're going to talk about in verse 14 that that clearly has not been fulfilled until until the Antichrist is revealed in the future. Then you have the tribulation mentioned in verse 24, which refers to the final seven years on this earth before Christ returns. And then, of course, in verse 26, there is the second coming of Christ which we believe is still future because Jesus has not returned yet. So for the next three weeks, this is going to be kind of a mini-series about what Jesus teaches about the final days. So let's jump right in. Point number one, you can follow along, is the fall of the temple. The fall of the temple. We see this predicted in verses 1 to 2, and in verses 3 to 4, the disciples ask for signs. When is this going to happen? That's what we're going to see. Now look with me once again. We just read this, right? But in verses 1 and 2, notice back in verse 1 that the disciples marvel at the majesty of this temple. This is Herod's temple. In the history books, they refer to this as the second temple. This is the second temple because the first temple built by Solomon was destroyed. And this is the second temple. And there were a lot of beautiful resources put into this. A beautiful stone temple that was built up. And as they're marching up or as they're walking up, hiking up to the Mount of Olives, they can see this temple. And so they're just basically making an observation. Jesus, what wonderful, what beautiful stones make up this temple. And Jesus condemns the temple. Now we've already seen, if you've been following along, that when Jesus judges the temple, he's not just judging this physical building. That's not what he's going after. He's going after the temple system, the religious system that is corrupt that, is, that has, is built around works-based righteousness, but also the corruption and the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. But the most tragic sin committed by the Jewish leaders is a rejection of Christ. It is a complete rejection of Christ to the point where their hearts are hardened, where they conspire at all costs to have Jesus murdered. And they don't know that this is ultimately part of God's sovereign plan, that God, that Jesus does need to go to the cross, and he does need to die for the sins of those that he's going to die for. But they're going to have Jesus killed, and that's part of their plan. So Jesus condemns the temple system. But the temple system is the heart of the land. It is the heart of Jerusalem. Uh, Without the temple, there is not really the presence of God, or the symbol of the presence of God, to gather around. So, with the destruction of the temple, would come the destruction of Jerusalem. And so, Jesus predicts all of this, and that's what he says in verse two when he says, "Do you see these these great buildings, this temple complex, and the the city?" But he's referring to the temple complex. There will not be left one stone that will not be thrown down to the ground. This is divine judgment, but. Jesus' words are sovereign and precise. I want you to notice here the sovereign precision of Jesus. Because even if you aren't Christian, even if you don't believe that Jesus is Messiah, even if you're a Jewish historian like Josephus who is trusted in Jewish history, you would still see that what Jesus predicted actually happened in AD 70. In AD 70, the Roman army marched into Jerusalem and they burned the city they burned the temple and they actually raised r-a-z-e is the word they brought down the stones along with a great fire and 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 the city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and so in AD 70 this prediction of jesus was completely fulfilled the temple is gone the temple has, hasn't been rebuilt since then in fact right now In Jerusalem or in Israel, it is the Muslim uh, Dome of the Rock, right? That's the, the Muslim mosque that's sitting on the Temple Mount where the Jewish temple was meant to be built or where the temple used to sit. Now, you see this more context in Luke. In Luke, if you can go back one second, thank you. In Luke 19, 43 to 44, this is the passage where Jesus, he it's the same passage, but only Luke gives us some insight that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. That Jesus' heart broke over Jerusalem because He he knew, he looked. At the people. He saw that they were unbelieving, that they had rejected their Messiah. His heart broke because he knew that it would all be destroyed. And in verse 43, he said, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side, and (coughs) pardon me, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children, within you. And they will not leave. One stone upon another. So how Jesus said every stone will be torn down. Luke's a historian, right? So he gives more insight. And he says, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So what does Luke tell us? Luke, in the very same account, in his version, he says there's a reason why these stones are coming down. There's a reason for the burning of the temple. There's a reason for the fall of the temple. Is when the, when the Messiah came, when Jesus came to visit his own people, they did not know of the time of their visitation. They didn't know that Jesus was coming, and they didn't know that the time of visitation of judgment was coming. So you can look at that on multiple levels. <clears throat> but notice back in Mark, in verses 3 to 4, the disciples ask a question. They want to know, when will these signs happen? Right? So, so notice, verses, verse 3 tells us that there's four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they ask Jesus privately. So they're like, Jesus. Can you give us more insight? And notice verse 4, there are, it's a two-pronged question. There's a when and there's a what. It's very clear, right? When will these things be? And what signs will be given so that we, we know when all these things are going to be accomplished? Now, exegetically, meaning interpretively, there is no other context to give you, to say what these things are. So most naturally, these things refers to the same conversation. So Jesus is saying that the stones are going to fall, the temple's going to be destroyed. And they're saying, basically, when is this destruction coming? When is the temple going to fall? Now, here's why you've got to pay attention, because Jesus answers, it's a prophetic, it's, it's tricky. <clears throat> Jesus says, I'm going to give you five signs I'm going to give you five signs of verses 1 to 13, and these five signs are going to tell you when the temple is going to fall. But these five signs have multiple levels of typical fulfillment throughout all of present history, and they will be maximized in the end times, even though it's all fulfilled by 8070. 70. And you're listening to me, you're like, oh, that's confusing. So is it, was it finished in history, or is it, in the future, and it's already not yet. It's both, and I'll explain that in point number two. And that's why you've got to pay attention. That's why study of the end times is challenging and difficult because Jesus speaks prophetically, and there's multiple levels of fulfillment. But how do we know that Jesus is speaking about the end times? How do, well, we know for certain based on context that he's talking about the temple. I'll show you that, the fall of the temple. But he's also talking about the end times because Matthew, we believe in, in the full Council of God, right, where Scripture answers Scripture, where the Bible helps you understand the rest of the Bible. And Matthew, in his very same account, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus teaches on the end times, Matthew gives us his version. And Matthew adds context <clears throat> to the disciples' question. And notice Matthew 24, 3. The disciples are asking the very same question they're asking in Mark, only Matthew gives us a little more insight. And Matthew says, they say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? Keep in mind, the disciples don't know how long it's going to be. They just know that Jesus has to go, and that he's going to come again. And then, and then they say, and of the close of the age. So tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your second coming and of the close of this age what do they mean the end of this world there is this age and then the age to come there is this world and then after jesus returns we believe in a an eternal kingdom that begins with a millennial kingdom and then the eternal state of the new heavens and new earth clearly taught in the book of revelation and so when is this going to happen they're asking they're asking when is this going to happen And under point number two, there are five signs, five signs that we are already in the last days, but it's not yet the end. And I want you to notice that because that's a key teaching of Jesus. You're going to see multiple times, Jesus says, you're going to hear these rumors, you're going to to hear deception, you're going to hear people say it's the end, it's the end, but it's not yet the end. Meaning these things you hear, they're true, they're going to happen. These are the signs, but don't be alarmed. It's not yet the end. It's just the beginning of the birth pains. It's just the beginning of the end. And and theologians refer to this as already not yet theology. So I'll teach that to you today. Is that are we in the end times? We are already in the end times. But is it the end? Not yet. Okay? So we call that already not yet. Do we have victory over Satan? Yes, Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. But is it fully fulfilled yet? Not yet. Satan's still very active. Are we completely saved in the sense where Jesus paid for our sins, justified us, being sanctified? Are we, is our glorification guaranteed if you're a true believer? Yes, we are already saved, but not yet because we're still being sanctified, and when we get to heaven, it'll be fully realized. So this is what theologians refer to as we're in between. We are in this eschatological tension where we love Jesus and where we are his, but we still battle with sin. We are already, but not yet, right? And so the entire Christian life is already, but not yet. So if you're a member of our church or if you attend here long enough, you're going to hear a lot of this. Because this is the eschatological position that us, we believe, right? That it's already, but not yet. So there, So these signs, are they already accomplished by 80, 70? In verses 1 to 13, these ones, yes but not yet, okay? So if you pay attention, you'll be able to follow, okay? So what's the first sign? The first sign is false messiahs, false messiahs. There will be many false messiahs. Jesus began to say to them, right? We read that. See that no one leads you astray. And notice what Jesus says. It's not just one dude or dudette or whatever, right? It's not just one person. But he says many will come claiming to be jesus saying i am he and they will lead many astray and when they come when it says i am he i don't think that means they're saying i am jesus of nazareth the carpenter right they're going to come saying i am the christ i am the christ and and, you know throughout history you've heard of this but even before 80 70 many christ many false christ have come and this so this is where you find fulfillment in Acts chapter 5, verses 36 to 37, so this is before AD 70. This is before the destruction of the temple. The very early church in Acts chapter 5 mentions Theodos and Judas the Galilean as two types of false messiahs. So did false messiahs come before AD 70, before the destruction of the temple? Yes. Okay. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 11 Acts 8, 9-11 describes Simon the magician as a typical typical of a false messiah, right? As a type of false messiah. So Acts chapter 8, again, that is before AD 70. Then the Jewish historian, Josephus, mentions several other false messiahs who claim to be the Christ. So clearly this sign was fulfilled by the time the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Jesus was not lying. So, again, why do I have to say that? Because when in Mark alone, when his disciples ask him, when will these things happen? Meaning, when's the temple going to fall? Jesus says, well, five things, five signs. Then the temple will fall. It's fulfilled. Okay, false messiahs came. Okay, Jesus' disciples asked for signs. Jesus gave the signs. Yet, after A.D. 70, Scripture tells us the false messiahs, many continue to come first john chapter 2 verse 18 how many of you guys familiar with that verse get familiar with it okay first john chapter 2 verse 18 this is written after ad 70 it warns the new testament church of john's time and our time it says as you have heard the antichrist singular is coming so now many antichrists have come Therefore, we know that this is the last hour, and that was written thousands of years ago, and so we are still in the last hour because Jesus hasn't returned yet. So, hour is symbolic. We we've been in the last hours, and that is why. And some of you guys will be like, "Amen." Our blessed hope is the second coming. Amen. Our blessed hope is the second coming. You see evil in this world. You see terrorism. You see natural disasters. You see hopelessness in this world. You see a degradation of moral uh, of the moral human mind. We continue to devolve, not evolve. Right? And what happens when the world is, is turning on each other and killing each other, and there's mass murder and mass warfare and dictatorship? More and more, you will see false saviors Emerge to say, I have the answer. You know, I am that Messiah. Or listen to this kingdom. Or listen to this religion. And First John warned us a long time ago, we are in this last hour, and we are to live in anticipation of the blessed hope. And who is the blessed hope? It is Christ and his sovereign return. Only he knows. We're going to see that in Mark 13. No one knows the time or hour when Jesus will come back. But until that comes, there will be many who claim and many false religions who claim to offer salvation from this world. From what we see in this world. And all of this. So you see fulfillment before AD 70. You see fulfillment in 1 John after eighty seventy. 70. You see fulfillment now that there are many false messiahs. But all of this leads up to the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians mentions the man of lawlessness. Daniel chapter chapter. 9 mentions the abomination of desolation i think of thanos from uh from you know from the the marvel movie right but but it's not him okay this is just i am the abominator of desolation it's not gonna be that funny you know he's not gonna come like that you know i am the abomination of desolation you know everybody would laugh it's not gonna be like that okay but but that antichrist figure is coming is coming Okay, and so that is pointing forward to a final fulfillment. Now, a second sign we see in verses 7 to 8 consists of wars and rumors of wars. And so look at verse 7. This is where Jesus begins to say, don't be fooled. When you hear these things, these things must happen. And they will happen, but it's not the end. Look carefully now. Look with me at your Bibles. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. You see where we get the already? We're already in the last hour, beloved. We are already in the last days. We are in the last days according to Jesus, but it's not yet the end. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. We are already, but not yet. Look at verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. It's just the beginning of the birth pains. right? So so think of birth pains. I want you to understand Jesus' illustration is so powerful. Birth pains here refers to contractions that, that occur at the end of pregnancy but the birth pains intensify you uh, for those of you mothers or those of you who know about childbirth you know that the, those those final pushes are painful right but but the early contractions it's bearable right and then it's unbearable so then that it's a sign but the birth pains the more the birth pains increase it's a sign that what? The end is coming. The baby's coming. The baby's coming. And, and, and that's why I don't believe in post-millennialism. I don't believe that the world is going to turn into a perfect utopia. You know, you look at this world, it's getting worse and worse. So, so there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And it happened before 8070. It's going to keep happening. There's going to be more wars. There's going to be more false messiahs coming to say, I'm going to save you guys from these wars. There's going to be more wars and more wars. It's going to get worse and worse and worse and more painful and more painful until... The end comes, and Jesus returns. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. There is increased deception. There is increased persecution. Increased warfare. And, beloved, do we not see this today? Increased persecution of Christians. Maybe not here in America, in the same way that we see it around the world. But it's coming. Increased natural disasters are all signals that the end is near. So when we panic and say, look, things are getting so liberal. I mean, come on, Jesus talked about this. Jesus talked about things getting worse and worse and worse, just like increasing contractions until God's plan gives birth to the new creation and the new heavens and new earth, which begins with the millennial kingdom. Right? Jesus is going to return, beloved. And and look at this this historical account, okay? So first, there were battles. So was this fulfilled before AD 70? Yes, but again, it's already, but not yet because it will be heightened. So there were battles leading up to the Jewish revolt in AD 67. That's the big war that led to the burning of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. This would ultimately lead to the major war resulting in Titus marching in and destroying Jerusalem and the temple. <clears throat> Yet, we know that there have been many wars throughout history of mankind, and all of this leads up to the ultimate war in Revelation. Now, there's a third sign. Notice the third sign in verse 8 that we just saw. Earthquakes in various places, right, and famines. Now, did this happen before 8070? Yes. Are there still earthquakes today? Yes, right? But before 8070, Laodicea and Pompeii suffered devastating earthquakes when? Historians say in the early 60s, in the early 80s, 60s, not 1960s, okay, 80s, 60s, and a significant famine hit parts of the Roman Empire. How do we know this? It hit Judea in the late 40s, and we know this because of Acts 11, 28. Acts 11, 28 speaks of an early famine. Now, Jesus mentions famines, but we know that famines can happen as a result of warfare and natural disasters. What happens during warfare? There's something called embargo, right? Trade and commerce is shut down and stopped. Supply lines are cut off. People are at war. And so if the world's at war, there could be a shortage for certain people who don't have those resources. It results in famine. There's scarcity. And and I'll show you later Revelation chapter 6. I'm not going to exposit it, but I'll just mention when the the symbol of scales and, and how much it costs for food Right? That's representing the famine. But famine also comes with natural disasters, not just warfare. When there's natural disasters, what happens? Supply lines are cut. The markets are closed. People struggle. They don't have enough resources. They can't get to the resources. All the resources are taken. Right? So, so Jesus is just speaking truth that happened before AD 70, but also we see famines and we see hunger and we see earthquakes happening now. Right, and So we see this, but it's heightened in Revelation. The fourth sign found in verses 9 and 13 is persecution from, government, from the government. We see this in East Asia now. We see this all over the world. We see this in Muslim countries. We see this in Southeast Asia. We see this in, in all over the world, in Africa. We see the government, and, and you can even say, okay, when the government tries to stop Christian values, that's like a subtle form, but I wouldn't call that the same level of persecution that the early church um, experienced. And literally in the book of Acts, you hear of people being put to trial in the synagogue because they preached Christ. So, so uh, you will have persecution from your government, but even in the book of Acts, and even you can, you can look at it, you can infer there's family persecution, meaning your own family disowns you or persecutes you for turning to Christ. Now, let me read to you uh, verses 9-11 once again. We read in the beginning of the sermon, but look, it says, but be on, be on your guard, right? So be mindful. Don't just be cruising in this world uh, ignorant of of what's coming, what Jesus predicted, which is be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils. That's official government councils as, as well as religious councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues like you read about in the book of Acts. You will stand before governors. Didn't Paul stand before Festus and Felix? I mean, so this is biblical, right? For And and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And they and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious, meaning don't be distressed beforehand what you're about to say, but but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So even persecution becomes a platform for the gospel to be proclaimed. And and this is very true. So the book of Acts repeatedly documents persecution The dog, the early church. But Paul describes very distinctly some of the government persecution he received. And you can find that in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12. Specifically, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, all the way to chapter 12, verse 10. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12 document that Paul experienced this. And once again, all of this happened before AD 70. So you find fulfillment In the midst of persecution, the great hope is the gospel goes out. And verse 12, there's family persecution, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children rise against parents to have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my sake. So why do they persecute Christians? Beloved, it's because they hate Christ. It's because they hate Christ. They hate Christ. And verses 12 to 13, the first part of 13, it describes this horrible family persecution. That Christ will divide families, right? Not because he wants to do that because it's a good thing, but naturally the gospel divides. As much as the gospel can unite and reconcile relationships, people who hate Christ and were destined to do so will not understand the truth. And and that's why Jesus' warning is so strong. He says, pay attention. You're not going to think that this is thinkable. you How can my own family disown me? How can my own uh, family members or my own children that I raise turn against me? And this is Christ's warning for us that this is how bad things will be in, towards the end. But even before AD 70, this was happening. Now there's a fifth sign. And scholars debate over how much this is fulfilled, and I will argue that this actually was fulfilled before AD 70, but is still being fulfilled to a greater degree. So yes, I'm dancing the line on both sides, but that's the already not yet theology. Look at verse 10. It says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So as a result of this gospel mission, that's why the persecution is happening, right? Because people are proclaiming the gospel. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. First, what is the gospel? The gospel is proclamation that Jesus is king. The gospel is the proclamation that Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sins and all the implications of that. And it must first, now I'll explain what that means and what it doesn't mean. It means that the Great Commission is going to happen. It means that the gospel will go to the nations, will go to the Gentiles. Now proclaim to the nations. The word all nations is ta ethne. I mean all ethnicities. This is the same idea we see in the Great Commission, that the gospel must be proclaimed first to the Gentiles. That's how I understand it. Now, the ends of the world back then was the borders of the Roman Empire. That was the known world. And before AD 70, the gospel had already gone out into Europe, had already gone out past the borders of Jerusalem, and it was reaching and converting Gentiles by, by far by then okay so was this fulfilled by 80 70 yes the gospel was first proclaimed to the gentile nations it went out the great commission was given this is a kind of a version of the great commission right now i want to clarify one misunderstanding some people misinterpret this verse tragically where they read too much into the words must first and they say well you're southern baptist right hanley yes well, according to your international mission board, there are over 3,200 unreached people groups today. Yes. So the gospel must first be preached to every unreached people group, otherwise Jesus is not returning. Yes. If you take that interpretation, so I can continue in sin that grace may abound because I don't have to worry. Jesus is not coming back. live. No, no, no one actually says that. But, you know, to be honest, I thought that. When I was a uh, a junior in high school, we learned about the end times uh, in Sunday school. And, and they showed us the signs of Jesus coming. And they said, well, oh, the gospel must be first preached to the nations. And I took that literally, tragically. I said, well, you know what? There's a lot of unreached people groups. So I have time to make a decision on Jesus. And that's before I understood the doctrines of grace and doctrines of predestination and election and grace, right? I was like, you know what? I have time because there's 3,200 unreached people group, groups. That's not what this is. That's tragic. You don't see that. Right? You see the opposite in scripture, which is be vigilant, be ready. Jesus will come back anytime. Preach the gospel. Preach the word because lives depend on it. Train men because lives depend on it. Right? That's the call. Preach the gospel in season and out of season be ready to give an answer give an account because jesus will call you at any moment there's a complete difference attitude so is the gospel going to continue to go out yes are more unreached people groups going to hear the gospel yes but can jesus come back now is this fulfilled yes because this simply means the great commission that the gospel must first be proclaimed to Gentiles. And after that, at any point, Jesus will return. And today, this is still being fulfilled, yes, to a great degree, because unreached people groups continue to hear about Christ. Now, I want you to understand this already, not yet, better and deeper. So on one side of the screen, you see false messiahs, wars and rumors of war, earthquakes and famines and natural disasters, political and family persecution as a result of the preaching of the gospel. And then you have the not yet side. And I'm not good with graphics, and, and I was on vacation, so I couldn't have Jessica align it for me. Okay, so try to just follow my messiness. Okay, but false messiahs, in Revelation 6, you see the military conquest on part of the Antichrist. You see that. That's the final false messiah. Right? You said wars and rumors of wars. Well, in Revelation 6:4, warfare breaks out upon the earth on behalf of the Antichrist. That's the final leading up to the final war. Earthquakes, famines, and natural disasters, Jesus predicted. You see it once again, Revelation 6, 5 to 8, famine and death resulting from warfare. Then a great earthquake, right? Jesus mentioned earthquakes in Mark. Look. A great earthquake convulses, resulting in the removal of every mountain and island from its place. Revelation 6, 12 to 14. You see this heightened in Revelation 11, where it describes it again, but at a heightened part. And then political and family persecution as a result of the preaching of the gospel to all nations. That's what Jesus predicted. Look at what Revelation says in the times: Persecution and martyrdom of the tribulation saints. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. Now, what is Revelation 6? Those are the seals, not animals, but seals that you use to seal the document. So in Revelation, you have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls, and and they all intensify. The seven seals, the final seal reveals the trumpets. The final trumpet reveals the bulls. And what you have is in the final seven years leading up to Jesus' return called the seven-year tribulation by theologians, most of these seals, the six seals, ha- most of them happen during this time. Then the trumpets, it's like that final part of the seven years. And then the bulls, it's just like a flash. It's just the end. And so if you've never read Revelation, that's how you read it. And that's why you see repetition. That's why you see earthquakes in chapter 6, earthquakes in chapter 11, and then a final great earthquake that, you know, nobody could survive. This is no, no, no way humanly possible. So so that's why what Jesus talks about is, Jesus talks about things that are already fulfilled by AD 70. They are being fulfilled, typified now through earthquakes and wars and persecution now. But, beloved, you have to hold on to the blessed hope because when the tribulation comes, we're going to see next week, nobody's going to want to live. That's what Jesus talks about. When you see the bombing nation, you you look at Mark 13, starting in verse 14, we'll see that next week. So give me two hours for next week's sermon. You just say, everyone run for the hills. You don't want to be alive. You don't want to be pregnant. You don't want to be nursing a child. That's what Jesus warns. It's going to be that bad. So when we say, hey, the world is getting worse, don't be surprised. Jesus predicted this. And yeah, that leads us to point number three. How are we to live then? Right back in Mark 13, how are we to live then? Look at the end of verse 13. Mark 13, verse 13 the very end, right? Which is point number three, faithful endurance of the saints. But the one who endures, another word is persevere, that could be translated as steadfast, remains steadfast, but the one who endures to the end of this age, if you're still alive, will be saved. All right, so this last part is going to be short and quick. I think the text is pretty straightforward. In the last part of verse 13, Jesus ex- exhorts us as Christians and the early Christians to endure until the end. And he's talking about genuine disciples. He's saying, resist deception. Resist falling away during persecution. And we know that if you are truly genuinely converted that you will persevere that you can't lose your salvation so what is this talking about will be saved refers to the perseverance of genuine believers that's what endure means endures means your faith is tested and it endures the test of deception the context it just endures the test of persecution the context that endures that when an earthquake comes you're not going to fall away from Jesus or when natural disasters or when war or famine comes you're going to keep trusting if you're around if this happens in our lifetime because you see things like that happening and James chapter 1 verse 3 says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know the testing of your faith meaning genuine faith is tested produces steadfastness that word can be translated endurance that's the endurance the mark is recording that Jesus talks about, that, the, that these trials are going to test the faith of genuine believers, right? And then uh, the New American Standard actually translates James 1.3 as, as produces endurance. In James 1.12, it says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, or you can say endures under trial, so all the trials mentioned by Jesus are included, for when he has stood... The test, when he endures, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And I believe that's eternal life in Christ, right? So it's not works-based salvation. It's not if you endure, you will be saved. That's not how it works. If you're endurance, you're not going to go before God, you know, and say, well, Jesus, I deserve to be saved because I'm righteous because I endured. No, 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 that's good that you endured. But instead, you're going to be like, I am saved because on the merits and work of Christ alone, and it's because I believe in that that my, I have genuine conversion. It's because I'm truly a believer and not a false believer that the Holy Spirit brought me through, that I was able to endure. I was able to even preach truth while persecuted. And so the big idea is don't be deceived or distressed, right? Don't be deceived or distressed about the last days Christ calls us to faithful endurance. We're going to look at this more next week, right? I'm packing even more. But don't be deceived or distressed about the last days Christ calls us to faithful endurance. Two applications as a means of kind of review is when we think about false messiahs, wars, famine, natural disasters, persecution, it's natural to become overcome by fear. It's natural to live with fear. We fear the unrest. We fear times of intense trial. We fear tribulation. We fear persecution. We fear for our children. But, it's, but we need to avoid having a gloom and doom outlook on this world because I don't think that's what Jesus calls us to. All right, today's scripture gives us a clear reminder that our hope is that Jesus predicted all this. Our hope is that scripture gives us truth That's proven through human history to be true. And that Jesus is completely sovereign over all things. That nothing in human history happens apart from his allowance or his decree. And not only does Jesus' words find fulfillment in real history, such as the temple being destroyed, but Christ promises that when we are persecuted, the Holy Spirit gives us words to speak. How many times do we read and are we inspired by persecuted missionaries today or persecuted Christians today who write something, and even in the midst of persecution, they haven't been silenced. And they inspire us to push harder and to fight harder because we have freedom of religion, to evangelize and to be outreach-oriented. And even persecution will be used by God as a stage for sharing the gospel. And despite persecution, the gospel continues to go forth on, unto the nations thousands of years later, and that should give us hope. You know what gives me hope? Is that you and I are saved. Because look at what Jesus predicted. Look how crazy that was. And if, and if all of these things happened before eighty seventy, and if it continues to happen, and if false messiahs continue to come, and if Satan continued to work through the spirit of Antichrist, then wouldn't the odds be against Christianity as a movement? Shouldn't Christianity be dead right now? Shouldn't we all be deceived? Shouldn't we all be running because of persecution? They burned Christians. They killed Christians. Uh, Christianity shouldn't exist based on the odds of human evolution where the survival of the fittest. But that's where our hope is the sovereign Word of God has stood the test of time from all of the beginning. And when Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished, he sealed the truth, the truth of every single word. And then when he resurrected, 1 Corinthians 15 says, you have to believe that every word is true. And we today who have never seen Jesus with our eyes, most of us never seen God manifested before us, We weren't there. We simply believe in words passed down to us as true because the Holy Spirit convinces us. And so our blessed hope is this, is that nothing can stop the gospel, that the gospel reached the nations, the gospel went past persecution and early tribulation, and the gospel has reached us. And even into tribulation, the tribulation saints, the gospel will reach others and people will get saved. And that's why Revelation talks about the martyrdom of the tribulation saints. Because the gospel, all it has to do is really capture people's hearts. When God captures people's hearts, it's not human intellect working. It's not just a mental idea. If the gospel has truly transformed your life, it it completely captures you. You, you, you want to give all, everything to Jesus. So some of you are sitting here today, you're like, ah, Christianity. You, know, you have your own life, but then Christianity is just this mental thing to you, or maybe it's a Sunday tradition. And if Jesus were to call you into heaven and account, account what do you have to show for your life, what would you say? Right? You can't present him, look at my portfolio, look at my church service, look at my church attendance record, look at my mental belief. You know, I, I had a comfortable American life, but I believed in you mentally, yeah, that's not going to fly, right? You have to go desperate before God and say, God, there's nothing that I could do to save my life. I have no merit, but just Christ alone. And you know what's going to happen? Jesus is going to look and says, your life showed for it. I know that you love Jesus. How many of you guys can say that, that if you were to go before Jesus today, that he would say, I know by your life and I know by your passions that you love me and not the world? Let me leave you with that. Let's come back next week and talk about the Antichrist. Father, we pray that you would grow our love for you. We pray, Lord, that as we are in the last hours now, that we are in the last days, that we all struggle with fear. We all struggle with worldliness. We all struggle to be faithful to you in in the standards of Scripture, according to the standards of Scripture. But, Lord, you have not lost hope in us. You're not done with us. We will endure because of perseverance, because of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to live even more boldly for you in these last days. Help us not shy away from the gospel and proclaiming it because we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.